guys. Welcome back to our teaching in the Gospel of John. Now, the last time we were here, we were dealing with Jesus's call of his first disciples. And we basically saw Andrew, Simon, who we know as Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And basically, the whole issue involved not only just simply the calling of the disciples, but how Jesus particularly manifested himself to one certain disciple. And that was the one who had spoken. Was it possible for any good thing to come out of um, Nazareth? And this was Nathaniel. And we saw a supernatural display of knowledge with Jesus and Nathaniel, where Jesus allowed Nathaniel, he made him to know that he knew who he was. He knew his character. He knew where he was. He even knew what he was thinking at the time that Philip approached him to tell him that they had found the Messiah. And then we know how that wonderful thing ended concerning the testimony of Nathaniel. You are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. And those are two of the primary issues that John is bringing out in his gospel, namely, you are the son of God. Okay. Now, not too far from this particular region, we prepare ourselves to get ready for the events of chapter two. So without any further delay, let's get into chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Okay. So now, now we want to remember there is a connection, okay? And that there is a connection between Jesus' statement to Nathaniel, the end of chapter one, and the beginning of this particular event. And this is a narrative event. So because it is so wonderfully narrative and not, not a lot of deep theological uh, input that we need to make into these statements, okay? We'll do that when it's necessary. But there is a tie from the end of chapter one until the beginning, or should I even say these events here. And at the end of chapter one, remember Jesus said to Nathaniel, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the son of man. In other words, you will see the glory of God in Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus, you will see the operating hand of God through Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what he was saying to Philip. You're going to see some magnificent things more than just me simply displaying supernatural. So there is a, a, a relationship. OK, but let us go into the context here. We are now in Cana of Galilee. And while we are there, Jesus his mother, as well as his disciples were invited to the wedding. So Jesus has come into some sense of being known. Now, maybe not known, or it's not a maybe. He's not known for doing magnificent, miraculous things at this time, because we can see even here that Jesus kind of kind of scold his mother a little bit. We'll talk about that uh, when it comes to doing particular things. But nevertheless, they're at this particular wedding. And while they were at this particular wedding feast, they ran out of wine. Now, you have to understand Jewish wedding festivities lasted typically about seven days. And usually what the, the host of the wedding would do, he would simply serve the better wine, as we'll see later on in this text. He'll serve the better wine early during the festive times. And then of course he would serve the less significant wine, the worst wine, worst tasting wine. Once people have drunk well, but that's a little premature. So you need to have enough food and wine provisions to last the entirety of time. Now, maybe some of you are wondering whether or not Jesus partook of this wine at this time. The scriptures does not say, however, it is customary for Jesus to drink wine. 
and nothing in the scriptures. I don't want to, I don't want to divert into this particular issue, but wine is never forbidden in the scriptures. Wine is simply warned against consuming too much and becoming drunken and influenced by wine. Remember what Paul said, be not drunken with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit. That is, don't drink so much wine until you've become drunken and influenced by the wine and your behavior is not good. Instead of being drunk with wine influenced, be influenced by the Holy Spirit. But I'll, and even again, let me give another example. Remember when Jesus said at what we call, some call the last supper, but it's literally the last Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples. And remember as Jesus was drinking that, that there would be four cups of wine that would be served during the Passover celebration. Jesus would partake of this cup of wine. Remember he himself said, I really would like to drink this cup with you, but I will not drink it with you until I uh, drink it again until we are in the kingdom. So Jesus did drink wine. And that was just an FYI, because some Christians believe it is uh, improper. It is sinful to partake of wine. And that is not biblical. OK, but anyway, we don't want to digress into that subject matter. So they are there. There is no, they run out of wine, which will create a huge embarrassment for the host of the feast. And so Mary comes to Jesus and informs him that they have no wine. Now, at this time, Jesus has not performed any miracles. So exactly what is it that Mary was expecting Jesus to do? We don't know, but it seems to suggest by the very act of her coming to him to help out the host that she was thinking that somehow he could do something, even though at this time, no miracles were done. So Jesus responded when Mary came to him. And that's where we're at verse number four. He responded and said, watch your attention. Let me bring your attention here. Woman, what, what does this have to do with us now? Notice he called his own mother woman. And the reason why Jesus called his mother woman and not mother was to set forth a distance between himself and her. In other words, Jesus's father is the son of God. And so therefore, Jesus will be bound to do the will of his father, as he said so many times throughout the New Testament scriptures. He has come to do the will of the father, the will of him who sent him. And the time when Jesus was a, a boy, a, a subordinate to his mother and subordinate to her wishes, that time is over and Jesus is now beginning his ministry, his service to the father. So it is now time for this service. So therefore, by calling her woman and not mother, mother, the idea is there would be a sense of submission, but calling her woman, he distances himself from his mother so that she would come to the understanding he has to do the father's will. Okay. And that's what's important. And then that's when the final part of this verse, my hour has not yet come. Now that could be a somewhat complex statement uh, made by Jesus, not so much as complex in which it is hard to understand, but complex in the fullness of the meaning and the meaning of this statement. My hour has not yet come always has to be looked at in the context in which our Lord makes the statement. But in a nutshell, he is simply saying Jesus is under the authority of the father. He is under the timetable of the father to do the will of the father when the father would have him to do certain things. And you will see this statement. My hour has not yet come once again throughout New Testament scriptures when certain things would come up and say, for instance, there would be a feast and Jesus would tell his brothers, his literally flesh and blood brothers, 
The time for you to go down is always my time has not yet come. My hour is not yet come. And that is certain things that Jesus would not do during his life ministry to rush the timetable that God has set forward for him. In other words, God set the perfect time for Jesus to be born into the world. God set the time for Jesus to begin his ministry, roughly about 30 years of age. All the works of Jesus's ministry were the predetermined will of the father. So Jesus had to act in accordance to the will of God and the timetable of God. So what he is saying to his mother here and what you'll see throughout his other parts of his ministry. Let me give you another example very quickly. Anything that would seemingly notice what I just said, seemingly rush the death of Jesus, anything that would promote the death of Jesus or promote unnecessary confrontation that could lead to possible, you know, notice the way I'm saying it, a premature death of Jesus. Nothing could do. The whole point is this, the timetable of the father. You would see Jesus avoiding situations such as that. Why? My hour has not yet come. But when you get into John chapter 12, John chapter 13, Jesus is going to pronounce now his hour has come. Why? For the finality, the finality of Jesus's hour is his death on the cross. And this also assumes uh, three days later, the resurrection from the dead. OK, so ultimately speaking of the hour, this concept and this complexities basically deals with the will of the father, the timetable of the father that leads to the ultimate time hour into which Jesus would be crucified on the cross. So that ministry that is under God's divine timetable. And so basically, now let's go back to what we were talking about. When Jesus kind of, well, not kind of, uh, uh, he distanced himself from his mother. He was simply letting him know that these things were not uh, her desire for him to act. And it seemed to suggest she was thinking of some supernatural act that he should perform. But her desire was not in conformity to the timetable and the will of God. Now, clearly, Jesus is going to perform this miracle, which which literally lets us know that what this received the OK from God. OK, but we don't want to get into all of that so far, but we need to understand why he spoke to his mother in such a somewhat coarse way, woman. And then what did he mean by his hour had not yet come. And again, they're at this wedding feast and the host was embarrassed. But nevertheless, even though Jesus spoke to those words to his mother, she still had some sense of hope that he would do something. So she told the servants in the wedding feast to obey Jesus in whatever he tells them. Okay, verse six. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So now let's just close this particular scenario. So Jesus, of course, operating under the assumed will of God. In other words, God has permitted him to act at the wedding feast. And so Jesus tells the servants to fill the water pots with water and that there had been those, what was it, six 
water pots, six stone water pots, somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons each. So you can see how a single water pot, anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons, and you got six of them, could give sufficient wine for everyone at the wedding feast, okay? And so Jesus told them to fill these pots with water. And these, this water, these water pots, were used for the Jewish custom of purification. That is, in the Jewish custom of purification, it is simply the Jews would often wash. They would wash pots. They would wash their hands. They would wash even the feet of people who had come off the road and things of that nature. So the Jews would often wash for cleanliness or for purification. And this is what they had so much water pots for because this was a very common thing for them to do and they needed a lot of water. And so now guess what? You got these huge water pots at the house, which would have commonly been used for purification, not for what Jesus is doing, but Jesus still used them anyway. So the servants obeyed Jesus and they filled it to the brim with water and then Jesus performed his first sign. And that's that word sign. We call it miracle. Sign. Here's the idea of semeon, which is the Greek word for sign. Sometimes you'll see it translated as miracle. But the idea is for the most part, always, especially when it pertains to Jesus and even the apostles in the book of Acts. But especially when it pertains to Jesus, it means signs. A sign is basically a supernatural act, a miracle that comes to attest something about the person who performs the miracle. In other words, Jesus came to them proclaiming to be the Messiah and the Son of God. Therefore, the, the miracle would serve as a sign. In other words, I told you who I was and the words that I spoke to you are true. Let this miracle or let this sign attest that what I have said to you about my words, about who I am is the truth. So you always need to understand that about the signs of Jesus. Never mistake that Jesus was in the New Testament simply performing miracles just to do them. The miracles were assigned to attest to his person, son of God, Messiah, and his message that the words that he spoke came from God. Okay, so now the water has turned to wine. The servants go to the head waiter and the head waiter had no idea that Jesus has done this miraculous sign. And so he tasted it. And so once he tasted the wine, he went to the bridegroom of the feast. And when he went to the bridegroom of the feast, he lets him know in a very uh, delighted manner. And simply he says, you know, what people normally do is they serve the best wine first. And then once people have drunk a lot and therefore they're not worried about the taste anymore, they're just drinking or whatever. Then he serves the lesser quality of wine. He said, but you have done a wonderful thing. You saved the best for last. And this speaks also, this is an inference to the person of Jesus as God himself, who has sent down through the ages of time, many servants. He has sent many spokesmen, many prophets. He sent Moses. He sent the prophets and Elijah and Isaiah. But now in these last of days, God has sent Hebrews 1 and 1, 1 and 2. God has sent his servant, Jesus. He saved the best for last. Okay. So he said, gave the, gave him that particular wonderful message. Verse 11, this beginning of his Notice the words, signs, Simeon, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Ga of Galilee and manifested his glory 
and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Okay, so to wrap this event up, it says that this turning water into wine was the beginning of Jesus's signs. And what John is intimating is it was simply the first of his many signs. And when John gets to the end of his gospel, he'll say many things that Jesus did. And I suppose if we were to write them all down, all the books in the world could not contain the things that Jesus did in a roughly three year period. So John, as we'll see in his gospel, is not trying to write a preponderance of miracles that Jesus did. John is selecting particular signs that Jesus did. And notice what he says. This sign that he did showed forth his glory. Now, again, this ties us back to chapter one. Remember when it said at the very first verse, in the beginning was the word. Word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word was made flesh, Jesus in the flesh. And what did they do? They beheld his glory. And again, look at the end of chapter one. And what did Jesus tell Nathaniel? You ain't seen nothing yet. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. You will see the glory of God in and through me. And how does he wrap the miracle up in Cana? This was the beginning of signs. We beheld his glory. That's why this particular event ties with chapter one, especially the words that Jesus had given to Nathaniel. Okay. All right. And so then Jesus left from there, Cana of Galilee, and he went into Capernaum. Now we know that later on and probably around this time, Jesus will make Capernaum the center of his ministerial base. His base of operations will be in Capernaum. And even there, Jesus will do and perform many signs amongst the people. All right. And okay. Then it said this, his disciples believed in him. So we see another reason and notice what I just said. Another reason, not simply because his mother asked him to, but in order that his disciples may believe. Remember, as we move to chapter one, go back in your head. We just dealt with Jesus' call of four of his disciples. And the idea is they have followed what John has instructed them. John has instructed to them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. So based upon the testimony of John alone at this time, these men are now following after Jesus. Now, we know we did have a little supernatural splash with Nathaniel, but the idea holistically is they are they are obedient to John pointing Jesus out and they're following him. This miracle goes to buttress to build up their faith. You're not following someone just simply called the Messiah, but he is truly the Messiah and he will display this in word and in deed. And that's why it says in the performance of the miracles, not only did the servants see, that is, remember the guys who got the water that Jesus commanded to, and they were aware Jesus turned the water into wine. Not only did the servants see this great sign miracle, his own disciples saw it and they began to believe. And you can imagine them saying, yes, yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, yes, he is the coming one. You see what he just did? And that's the idea behind that. But anyway, so afterward, he moved into Capernaum of Galilee. Okay, let's do another section since this is primarily narrative and we don't have to hit a lot of theological points, okay? And to keep the video from being too long, but I think we'll be able to complete the whole chapter. So let's just simply do that. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near 
And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, now let's talk about this. Here we are moving to an incident in the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the cleansing of the temple. Now, in the synoptic gospels, remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, synoptic gospels, okay? They show a cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry. But John, that is John the apostle, also lets us know that Jesus performed this act at the beginning of his ministry. And in the end of Jesus's ministry, it was that act when Jesus did this again, one of the reasons that added to their desire to kill him. Okay, but we're not there yet, but we have the cleansing of the temple. Okay, now notice in verse 13, John calls it the Passover of the Jews. And again, when John gives that reference to the Jewish people as the Jews, there is a sense of negativity. And that's because these are unbelievers. And as we can see in the temple and as the religious leaders themselves, they were unbelievers. They did not believe that Jesus indeed was their Jewish Messiah, their long awaited Jewish Messiah. But anyway, so Jesus, the Passover was near and this is fitting for Jesus to go and remember that God had commanded in the law of Moses for all Jewish males to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for the three festives occasions. That is the Passover. You can call it Passover unleavened bread, basically celebrated as one Pentecost. That is the feast of weeks and then Sukkot or tabernacles, the final feast. For these three feasts, they were to go to Jerusalem. So of course, Jesus being obedient to all of the law, he would go. And John makes special notation of this Passover feast. And it is also fitting for Jesus to go at the Passover for he is the Passover. Remember the Passover festival was given under Moses in Exodus chapter 12, where by which the blood of the lamb would allow death to pass over them. Speaking of salvation. And what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? What did he call Jesus? The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If the sin of the world is taken away, the penalty of sin is taken away. The penalty of sin is death. Okay, so it is quite fitting for John to bring Jesus coming to the Passover celebration. But here, as he goes up to Jerusalem and always in the scripture, you go up to Jerusalem. He found a calamity of sort in the temple courts. Now, these things were taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Now, you have to have a basic understanding of the temple. First, you had the place in the temple where only the priests could go. And this would be the service of God when the priest would do the different type of offerings and things of that nature. All right. And then you have another place of the temple further out from there would be the place where only Jewish men could go, where only Jewish men could go in their worship in the temple. Out from there, you would have the court of the women, Jewish women. And then you would have the court of the Gentiles where non-Jews could come and worship God. And that's the idea with all of this structure in the temple compound. These were places given and mandated by God for the different groups of people to worship God. But in the court of the Gentiles, where they were supposed to worship God, the, they, the Jewish leaders 
profane this place. So let me continue to explain it. This was the thing done called the Carnival of the Sons of Annas. And remember, Annas was the high priest, okay? And the high priest and the priest were basically of the Sanhedrin. They are, I'm sorry, I said that incorrect. The Sadducees, yes, they were members of, for the most part, the Sanhedrin, right? But they were Sadducees. That's what I was trying to get you to see, Sadducees. So what these sons of Annas would do, they would profit during the festive times. You see, remember, all Jewish males were commanded to appear in Jerusalem. So you would have a huge number of people coming from great distances to Jerusalem to worship. So what the sons of Annas decided to do, all under the authority of their father, Annas, was to use the occasion to make money. So when you would, so what they would do is, when you would come, if you would bring an animal, say for instance, if you brought your own animal, your own goat or your own lamb for sacrifice, they would find something wrong with your animal. And the reason is so that they could sell you another animal and they would sell the animal at inflated prices. So they would, would reject your animal in which nothing was wrong with it. They were rejected. Nothing was wrong with it. Probably turn around and resell it so that they could sell you one of theirs and make money. Also, you'll see the thing like the doves and things of that nature. They would sell those things to you. Because remember, you would have a lot of people making pilgrimages to Jerusalem at this time, and it would be uh, an inconvenience to try to bring these animals along the way. Now, the local people may try to bring their animals and their animals would be rejected like I just told you. But people coming from a distance most likely would not and would have to buy animals at an inflated price. So the sons of Annas made these animals convenient for them, selling them in the court of the Gentiles. Also, they would have the money tables. Now, the whenever you would come and make your offering, your monetary offering uh, to the court or pay your temple tax or whatever, you would have to pay it in Jewish coinage called the shekel. And remember, these are people coming from different places, different nation states, different parts of Rome, and they would have Roman coinage and other types of coinage. This coinage, and especially because it had the picture on Caesar, and this would be considered idolatrous to give money from the Gentiles with these pagan images into the Jewish temple treasury. So they would have to convert the money. So the sons of Anus would have money tables, money changers to convert whatever coinage that the people would bring into the Jewish coinage, the shekel. But the problem was this, when they did it again, they cheated the people and did it at inflated prices. So you see the whole issue of this carnival of the sons of, Can of Annas, they did these things at an inflated price. They beat the people and misused the people in the exchange of goods and services right there but most important of all, these activities took place in the court of the Gentiles. That is where non-Jews would come to the temple of God and worship God. This is where they did that. So therefore, the, G the Gentiles had no decent place to come and worship God. And this is what triggered the anger of Jesus. Okay. Now, with all that said, so what did he do? He took cords, bound them up, and whipped their behinds, and drove them out of the temple, and told them to take all of their stuff, and you get that mess out of here, and take it with you. And when they, and when they did that, now that's the idea of Jesus said, stop making my father's house a place of business. Why? Notice, in another place you say, for the house of God was supposed to be a worship place, a, a house of worship for all the nations. Notice all the what? Nations and nations here in the plural refers to goyim, 
the Gentiles exactly where they were doing this in the court of the Gentiles. So Jesus reprimanded them, told them to take all of this stuff out. And then in verse number 17, it was afterwards that his disciples remembered how in Jesus is driving them out. It was a fulfillment of Psalm 69, I believe 69 and 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. That is when it says a zeal, a desire, a jealousy for the right thing to be done in God's house really makes Jesus angry, not in, in an uncontrollable way for our Lord was never out of control, but it brought Jesus to great anger because his jealousy for what ought to be done in the house of God. And may I even say, I pray God that maybe some of you, that same jealousy may consume you. Now, now let me say this, where we have now churches, these are not the house of God. No, the Bible teaches, Paul teaches in first Corinthians, know ye not that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells inside of you. We are the living, breathing houses of God. That's who we are. Or even you can even say collectively the body of Christ, the saints of God, the house of God is no longer a singular place in Jerusalem, but it is in each of us. Nevertheless, the saints of God, the church, we have designated places of common worship whereby the saints come to worship God. Do you understand the distinction that I just gave you? We, the church, when we go to church, it is not the house of God. We are, but it is a place designated where the saints of God can collectively gather together to worship God. So this is places designated for our common worship of God. So in saying all of that, some of us, maybe some of you, will get such a zeal for the places that we come to commonly worship God that certain things ought not to be done in the house of God. Certain manners should not be carried out in the house of God. Certain dress codes should not, you should not come to God's house looking like you've been to the club. And I see that kind of garbage all the time, especially among the women. People act like they don't have sense enough to know how to dress when you come to the house of the Lord. Loosen your dress up some. Loosen your jeans some. You are not here to get the attention of people. You are not here to get the attention of men so that a man can look at you and know what you look like, to know what you shape like. Save that for your husband at home. Home, when you come to the house of God, your mind is supposed to be on God. Your mind is supposed to be on the worship of God. Your mind, your intent is never to get people to look at you. Put your mind on God and worship him and get other people involved in the worship of him and him alone. And which is one of the reasons why I hate these so-called praise dances. I hate them for the most part. Normally the women not dressed right. And two, they do things that just look, come to God's house for the worship of God. Allow the zeal for our common place of worship to disturb some of you to the which you might declare like Jesus, get this mess out of here. This place is a house of prayer, not a house for all this foolishness, but a house of prayer. Okay, enough said about that, but we really need to clean that mess up. So the disciples remembered how Jesus doing these things was a fulfillment of Psalm 69. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him in response to what Jesus had done, sons of Annas, the priests 
who were over the temple, but not no commentary. Let's read the scriptures. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Okay, so now let's talk. So the Jews, that is the priests the, uh, uh, of the Sadducees, because they were over the temple, they were indignant. They became indignant because of what Jesus had done. And then they just lost a source of money when Jesus. And so they wanted Jesus to show, well, what authority do you have? Who are you to do these things? We run the temple. Who are you? You are not the Messiah. Not that the Sadducees were even really caring for the Messiah, but the Pharisees were. But they were basically asking him, what authority do you have in doing what you just did? And so Jesus simply said to them in a cryptic manner that the disciples will understand later on after Jesus' resurrection of the dead, what that he did say these things and what he meant at this time when he said it. But he said it in a cryptic manner, destroy this temple. But the temple that he was referring to was not the temple that he had just cleansed, the temple in Jerusalem. He was referring to the temple of his body. For Jesus knew already that they would kill him. He already knew that they would have a hatred of him that would lead to his death. So he prophesied of their killing of him, destroyed this temple, his body, and he also prophesied of his resurrection from the dead three days later, and I will raise it up in three days. And so they responded to Jesus uh, in comic uproar. They said, what? They said, this temple took 46 years to build. Now, this was the temple that was refurbished by Herod. Now, we know that once, and we don't want to get into the history of these things, but after the Babylonian exile and they came back into the land again under Zerubbabel, the house of God was finished. And we know that we uh, had these particular prophets encouraging them uh, to Zechariah and all of that and, and his contemporaries uh, and Haggai, Haggai to rebuild the second temple. Okay. The second temple. But many years later, roughly about what? 20 BC, Herod, the great Herod, the great remember Herod. And we don't want to get into all of that, but Herod was an Igemean Jew. Herod was an Edomite. Okay. He was not a Jew he was an Edomite. And as an Edomite, he was rejected by the Jewish people as their king, although Rome permitted Herod to rule as king. You got it? But he was hated of the Jewish people. He was an Edomite. He had converted to Judaism. All right. So in order to query favor, he wanted to gain favor of the Jewish people. He decided to refurbish the temple. And it was great as he spent a lot of time. He spent a great deal of money in refurbishing the temple. And I think it was not until roughly about what, 66 AD, I think 66 AD, that the temple was actually finally finished. And it was a great, beautiful and wonderful construction. But Herod simply did this because he wanted to win favor with the Jewish people. But they're referencing the temple simply saying it took 46 years to build this structure. And how in the world are you going to build a structure that took 46 years? How are you going to build it back in three days? And that's when the text lets us know it was not the physical temple in Jerusalem. Jesus was talking about, but it was the temple of his body and his disciples remembered that Jesus has said all of these things at this time when Jesus had raised was raised from the dead. So notice they believed both what the scripture and they believed the words of Jesus equating Jesus's words 
on par with the scriptures. Equating his words are just like scriptures. Okay. So now let's go. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So while Jesus was there at the Passover time, he also performed many other miracles, that is, signs. Remember, that's the operative word for us. He performed many other signs. And remember what we said about the people coming to Jerusalem at this time. There'd be many. So many people would begin to observe Jesus' signs. And that's what they did. And they began to believe, notice what it said, to believe in his name because of the signs that Jesus was doing. Now, again, belief is one of those sub-themes in the Gospel of John. To believe, and that is to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and John's primary point, the Son of God. He is a divine person. But here, we're just simply in the sense of, here is in the sense of believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And they based their belief in Jesus that he was the Messiah was because of the signs, the miracles that Jesus did. And remember the whole point about the meaning of the word signs. It's a miracle that is done to attest something about the miracle worker, something about what he says, that's true. Something about who he claims to be, that what he claimed, that what he says and who he claims to be, that's true. So they were believing that Jesus is the Messiah, not only because of his words, but also because of the signs that Jesus was performing. However, such a belief, such a belief is superficial. True faith, true believing in Jesus that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, comes not simply by the observation of signs and wonders. True belief and faith in Jesus comes of the heart of the individual, not the observation of superficial miracle for what we have here is superficial belief. They are not truly believing in Jesus unto their salvation. They have superficial belief, a belief that comes and the belief that will go a belief in Jesus that doesn't hold a belief in Jesus that will prove itself ultimate to be, to be not genuine. And that's the point. And this is why we have the remainder of these verses. Notice they were believing, but notice, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. In other words, they said, yeah, we believe it. We believe you're the Messiah. We believe. And Jesus was inside saying, mm-mm. Mm -mm. No, you don't. You don't truly believe that I'm the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus, again, notice that supernatural issue about Jesus. He knew all men. And since he knew all men, he did not need anybody to tell him about man. He didn't need anybody to tell him what was truly in a man's heart. So notice the issue here. Even though they were claiming belief in Jesus, this belief was superficial. It was not true faith. It was not true saving faith. And that goes to lay out a principle for us. Miracles don't give and supply true saving faith. True saving faith is of the heart of the individual and not simply what he sees. But anyway. So Jesus understood what was in man and therefore Jesus did not 
entrust himself to them. In other words, okay, yes, right. I'm your Messiah. I'm the man. Y'all believe in me. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. There is a negative tone here. Even though they were saying they were believing in Jesus, Jesus is doing this. Mm-mm. Mm -mm. No, you don't. And we can see even such things again. This is a sub theme in the gospel of John in chapter six of John, when these very people would come to Jesus, believing that he was Messiah. So they say wanting to make him king. So they say when Jesus turned the stone, turned the, uh, uh, he made the multiplication of bread and the fish and this same occasion that is the next day, Jesus would say, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. And the Bible said many of those very people who so-called believed in him, many of them turned away and did not follow Jesus anymore. From that day forward, they were through with Jesus. So therefore, their faith was not genuine faith. It was a superficial faith. And guess who knew that? Jesus, the Messiah, God, who knows the minds of all men. For only God can know what is in a man. And therefore, John takes us all the way back. What? My point concerning Jesus, he, he knows, okay, by knowing what is in the heart of a man, this is something only God knows. So therefore, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word. Word was with God. Word was God. God became a man. Jesus is God. Only God can know the mind of all men. All right. Thanks for joining me with that, guys. The beauty of that section is, and we'll see that again uh, in the Gospel of John, was that it was narrative and it allowed us to complete the whole chapter. Thank God for that. But join me next time as we get ready for chapter three and we deal, we even bring out further, there will be another tie of the whole instance of Jesus does not need to, anybody to tell him about the heart of man. For Jesus knows all men and he knows the hearts of all men. And so we will be ready to move into chapter three when the scriptures will introduce us to uh, uh, to do between Jesus and Nicodemus. And we will find out that Jesus knows the heart of Nicodemus. All right. Anyway, guys, thanks for joining me with that. And as a reminder, I. Uh, if you want to say thank you, if this ministry has been a blessing and you want to say, Pastor Lee, thank you so much for these teachings, then show your thanks by way of supporting the ministry. In the description below, there's some information to give you how to support the ministry and bless the ministry so that we can keep these lessons coming to you. But nevertheless, it is always for me a pleasure and a delight. All right, guys, see you next time.